Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 50, 4 through 11. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me against me, let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. All right, uh, we continue today uh, in our series on the four or five, uh, depending on how you look at it, servant songs found in the book of Isaiah. Uh, they are so named uh, due to the description and predictions of what this special individual will accomplish on behalf of God's plan and purpose for not only Israel, but uh, all humanity. Uh, many commentators concur that the servant is indeed uh, the Messiah Jesus. So in chapter 42, uh, we learned about the just scope and the gentle manner of the servant's uh, ministry. In chapter 49, we examined his early calling and preparation, um, his sense of failure and revitalization, and then the expansion of his mission. Now in chapter 50, uh, we gain further insight into how the servant will carry out his given assignment. Although uh, the servant uh, is not technically identified until uh, verses 10 and 11, the similarities uh, with the other uh, previous songs are clear enough uh, to include this chapter as one of them. Um, the protagonist, as in previous songs, is obedient and faithful. Uh, here he's uh, deeply troubled, but he is supremely confident in his calling and ultimate vindication. Um, the distinctive features of this uh, song are to elaborate on the sufferings to be faced and to stress the obedience factor which provoked uh, them. Uh, in the first song, there was no mention of suffering per se. And in the second song, there's only uh, uh, the sense of frustration, of fruitless labor. But here, uh, the servant's obedience uh, to God leads directly to both physical and emotional suffering. And of course, today being uh, Palm Sunday, the liturgical significance makes the uh, words of Isaiah 50 uh, ring even more true. So my Servant title uh, is there, uh, Servant Song, Predetermined Determination. I wanted to kind of evoke a sense of resoluteness. 
determination uh, in the servant to complete his mission. Uh, this in spite of the fact that he seems to know beforehand the difficulty of what he must do. Uh, the question of whether he will do it or not do it is actually already decided, um, predetermined. So I'd like to structure the message uh, then in terms of this uh, idea or concept of determination. Uh, first, uh, formation right, in verses four and five. How, how did it come about? Right? How did uh, determination, how did this resoluteness um, get established? And then how does it manifest? How does it, um, how is it demonstrated by the, by the servant? And that's kind of verse six. And then um, how does it get sustained? How does it, how does it make it last? Uh, perseverance, uh, duration, um, and, and this according to the servant's own words. Um, let's try to tackle uh, each aspect uh, one by one in turn. Uh, it's pretty interesting to me that uh, a servant uh, first needed to listen and learn. Uh, from the Lord, what he was supposed to say to the people. Um, the message that he's about to, he was supposed to proclaim was um, actually not automatically kind of known or implanted in his mind. Um, he needed first to learn and digest so that he could correct, speak correctly and authoritatively. So looking at verse four again, um, you see that term instructed tongue. It's an expression that refers not only to the prophetic aspect of the ministry, but that the message spoken was that learned as a disciple under instruction um, in intimate association uh, with his master. Right? The servant is to speak forth the knowledge that he has gained in that kind of discipleship setting. Um, it's a rather idyllic picture of buying or or intimacy, closeness, right? The servant himself is a true disciple. He's not just up to do whatever the master says. I mean, that's the definition of a servant, but it's in that kind of yeah, crucible, if you will. It's in that uh, setting between master and disciple that um, what he's supposed to do, this formation of this determined spirit gets uh, established. The inspiration of this prophet is not through uh, dreams or ecstatic visions, but through morning by morning conversation, teaching, uh, instruction, in the light of full rationality and personal interaction. Right? It took time. It took it had to be developed, right? Now, there are hundreds of examples regarding kind of the apprentice relationship, right? Someone who knows, who's passing on, transferring, transmitting um, kind of knowledge or expertise or just wisdom to uh, the learner, the disciple, the apprentice. But, uh, uh, you know, so I, I thought about you know, there's many ways to talk about this, but I wanted to kind of give, I guess, a media, not a media, but a cinematic example. So whenever you hear the word apprentice, you got to think of the Star Wars, 
it's no longer a trilogy, you know, whatever the universe uh, that it is, right? And I apologize because I haven't watched anything past episode seven, I think. And uh, yeah, so I'm sure what I'm going to talk about is dated and, you know, it might contradict what has happened in the subsequent episodes. But uh, I want to look at uh, or I was thinking about Yoda and uh, Luke, right? Yoda and Luke Skywalker. Right? So after Obi-Wan dies, uh, Luke goes to Dagobah, where Yoda's kind of retired, right? Yoda used to be this famous Jedi master trainer. And uh, so he goes there and um, Luke is, you know, he's strong in the force, but he's impatient, he's impetuous. And Yoda notices that. And so it's kind of cool to watch their interaction of how Luke wants to know the secret. He wants to know, he wants to go, go, go. But Yoda's kind of like slowly, you know, showing him how to uh, become you know, who he's supposed to be. And, you know, Luke actually doesn't finish the training and he, he, he hears, he figures out that his friends are in danger and then he kind of rushes off incomplete and that causes some problems. But eventually um, he comes back. So I thought that was kind of like an interesting, you know, trivial way, if you will, to kind of get a sense of what is happening even like in this divine relationship, right? Yeah, God, the sovereign Lord, morning by morning, forming the, the mission and also the determination uh, in, in the, within the heart uh, of the servant. Yeah, for example, because of the servant's discipleship, uh, he discovers that he needs to speak words to help the weary. Yeah. And that's kind of an important component of Jesus's ministry, right? He, uh, he extends this uh, invitation to find rest in him, that how sin has not only uh, depleted us and um, caused us to, to uh, have difficulty, but the peace uh, that comes from resting in him and trusting Jesus. The servant also learns that his speech will be powerful enough to destroy strongholds, to overcome opponents, but that there will be consequences uh, of this pointed speech. What becomes further apparent in verse 5 is that he learns that uh, what he's about to say will uh, cause the response of the people to not be very favorable. They're going to react, they're going to be upset, they're going to be angered at what he says. And this growing realization uh, could actually discourage him or even deter him from speaking that whole message. Verse 5 indicates that rebellion or refusal um, is actually a real possibility. The servant might kind of renege, he might back away from what the Lord wants him to do. But he makes it clear in the second half of this verse that uh, he will not be, he will not run away. Uh, he would not draw back. He would not be rebellious, even as the horror of what he has to do becomes more and more real. Right? We see that right? determination taking uh, definition. 
know that term sovereign lord right we see we encounter that a lot in the bible but it's interesting in the servant songs it only shows up apparently in chapter 50 i think but it's used four times right i think this emphasis on not only the almighty power of the sovereign lord but the fact that he is sovereign in purpose sovereign in will right sovereign in uh over uh, the servant and it's because of that sovereignty the lord's sovereignty that the servant will it. so like i said he, he determines the servant determines beforehand that he will obey the lord obey all that the lord has laid out for him he will not turn back or turn aside he is committed to seeing this all the way through now another way to understand what the servant is saying in, in verse 5 is to recognize that to hear like the, the servant's ear is awakened right is uh, virtually synonymous with to obey so hearing is not just an auditory experience it's to hear and then uh, through the will determine decide commit to doing what you've heard to carry out to implement what uh, uh, the, the, the sovereign Lord uh, has said. So that leads us to our second uh, point. Now we've done formation, now we're on manifestation. Um, um, what that obedience or what does that determination look like? So starting from verse six, the description of the servant's activity or experience, it crosses over into um, persecution and suffering. Yeah, and this verse is just uh, amazing to me. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So here we have uh, physical right, injury. We have psychological abuse. Right? Kind of, and you can assume the relational kind of um, severing that uh, will take place the servant the manifestation of the servant's determination is to submit to humiliation and abuse you know one would uh, think or imagine that the a servant of the sovereign lord would have a smooth and triumphant path like ed mentioned palm sunday right that you'd expect that to be like all the time people you know shouting in shouts of praise shouts of thanks shouts of, of deliverance you know, the the, the the red carpet, the, the cloak carpet, uh, palm carpet uh, treatment. But to be a prophet in Israel was actually synonymous with mistreatment. Yeah. Uh, there were certainly institutional prophets, professional prophets uh, of the Jewish religion, men who stood at the center of social power. Right? They got, you know, they, they, they enjoyed all the trappings of power and influence. But the true prophets of God, the ones that were the real servants, they stood, always stood at the periphery. Uh, there, instead of trying to look good for others, in front of others, they confronted godless behavior, or they call for change. They were not popular at all. Uh, and the usual response was rejection and insults and a threat of bodily harm. So to speak and to invite, to, sorry, to live and speak for God, right? to be a prophet was to invite abuse. Yet it is part of the servant's obedience, like as he said, he gave his back, right? He exposed his, his body to uh, those who would strike him. 
and his chin to those who would pluck out his beard, right? That was a, a sign of like ultimate shame. You're shaming somebody by pulling out their beard. It wasn't just a physical pain. I'm sure it'd be painful, but it was more of like a, a, an insult because you know, you've been, you've said something or done something or you're, you're from something that is, uh, you know, to them contemptible. Uh, he does not hide, the servant does not hide his face from shame and spittle. <laughs> Uh, these things are not merely a secondary result of declaring God's word. It is actually part and parcel um, of the servant's obedience right, to uh, be found, to, to, go, to have to go through uh, these kinds of humiliations and uh, hurt. Now, of course, um, this tracks closely with what Jesus underwent. He was flogged with whips for his unwavering claim that he was the son of man. He was repeatedly beaten with instruments and fists for calling himself the son of God. He was spat upon for his claim that he was uh, king of the Jews. Jesus was mocked by elite by the elite and the commoner alike for um, hanging shamefully on the cursed tree. Uh, he enacted with zeal and determination all that uh, the Lord taught him and told him must uh, take place. If there was any doubt, um, this servant, obedient servant, stands in marked contrast with the nation of Israel. Uh, in Isaiah, Israel, the nation, is described as blind, deaf, and calloused of heart. In contradistinction, the servant declares that he has always obeyed whatever God has spoken. He claims to be perfectly obedient to God's activity. So no other prophet, no other leader, no other group of people, no nation could make such a claim. Not only is the uh, servant's adherence to the revelation of the Lord uh, powerful, but it's exemplary. It's uh, a model uh, for us uh, to follow. I don't know me exposing our body suffering or our hearts to uh, kind of bleeding. <laughs> uh, it might, right? But uh, the servants of the Lord today, you and me, that's what we're called to do, uh, to form that determination in, in closeness and intimacy with the sovereign Lord, and then put into action what he tells us uh, to do, even if it's hard, right? even if it's certainly undesirable, to not be rebellious, to not be self-preserving to not draw back. Um, these days, I think we hardly think that persecution or suffering is a sign of blessedness. Yeah, but, you know, uh, Jesus said a lot about that, right? I'm one the best that are you persecuted and insulted for my name. Yeah. Um, Jesus knew that he himself would go through it and his followers and if they were serious about manifesting that determination, um, there would be uh, yeah, difficult days uh, ahead. And today, with movements like the prosperity gospel, or you know, you might have heard of Christian nationalism, 
Um, the idea that following God entails rejection and maybe even pain from others is really a far away thought. But the quintessential servant here, uh, he's familiar with suffering. Uh, even though he's 100% in the will of God, he experiences condemnation and hardship. Uh, Paul says that everyone who seeks to live a godly life you know, will be persecuted. So there we see that determination uh, to demonstrate what he has learned in words, in his words and his actions, even at great uh, personal cost. So I want to talk a little bit about that intersection between formation and manifestation. To me, it's it's kind of like what you this this kind of major theme in in Christian life, right? and you may see it in in your life and mine. Um, the the difference between like hearing or knowing, right, and then doing or applying or obeying. I think there's a pretty big gap, a disconnect uh, among among us, right. It's commonplace. Uh, many Christians enjoy learning like biblical truths, right, as well as insight into the revelation of God. These are enlightening and fascinating. But head knowledge uh, uh, often ends up kind of being uh, where uh, people land and, and don't make any more progress, right? It becomes an end in and of itself. Biblically speaking, learning is not meant to ever remain stationary, let alone stagnant. James uh, tells us, do not merely listen to the word, uh, but do what it says. He provides a helpful metaphor, does he not? Um, like he says, hearing the word of God is like seeing yourself in a mirror. Right? We've all had that experience of seeing our reflection. Failing to then apply or obey the word of God is like having seen that image you forget what you look like so it's just a fleeting experience it's a passing thought and sometimes you know the word of god becomes like that whether it's our our reading of the bible whether it's our listening to a, a message right we see ourselves we see truth we see god but we don't carry it out. We don't manifest what we have seen, what we've heard, and it kind of just fades away. Or it, like I said, it uh, it, it it pools uh, in, let's say, a kind of a stagnancy. Um, the Sermon on the Mount even concludes with uh, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. And after all that Jesus said, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he says, okay, this is what I want you to do with this, right? And he gives an example. The wise and foolish builders, um, and there's a lot of similarities between them, right? Both of them built something, right? And and so that, that common experience, Jesus equates to they've listened, they've learned um, what the principles of the kingdom are, but the foundation that they choose to build on, the, the, the substrate, right? The wise builder builds on a rock, the foolish man builds on sand, right? And what is the difference? 
The only distinction is Jesus says, those who hear the word and do not do it is like those who build on sand. And those who hear the word and, and do it, uh, obey it, they're the ones that build on a rock. Right? So it's uh, application, it's obedience, it's manifestation. That's the only difference between uh, the two men, the two builders. So I think it, it's important to kind of be, to be able to really bridge that gap, to kind of fill in that chasm that you and I might feel between here when form termination, but then when push comes to shove, rubber meets the road, whatever you want to say, when it's time to act, when it's time to get out there, put ourselves out there, we don't shrink back, we don't kind of drag our feet, we don't rebel. Yeah, the servant um, sets quite the example by following through, carrying out, executing what he had come to learn. And what that meant was to offer his body and to sacrifice his ego uh, as punching bags, right? both literally to the people who did not want to hear uh, what he had to say uh, to them. So uh, that's one thing to think about, like, again, how, what we go through, what that looks like for each of us individually, that's something you have to form between you and God. But I think there's always, or of the time, let's say, there is a cost, right? To be a servant of the Lord, even today, there's a cost, right? It might be physical, it might be financial, it might be emotional, it might be relational, it might be um, you know, psychological. I'm running out of <laughs> different types, but it, it, it involves us doing something, right? That's kind of how God works, right? That, he, uh, through the example of, of Jesus, the servant, um, obedience is costly. Um, one of the things this past uh, few months that I've been able to do is to do some discipleship, uh, go through some discipleship, um, kind of what are training or, 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 or gatherings. And, uh, I, I've been using um, uh, kind of a Christian booklet or a material called, uh, used to be called Surviving Kit 2, How to Survive as a Growing Christian. Um, it, uh, it, it talks about, focuses on values, right? I think Ed is also leading a group, uh, led a group in that regard, same material. And, uh, you know, I've done it like five or six times over the you know, course of my Christian life. And it's spoken to me in different ways, different situations. Um, the main idea here is that the, the, the key idea of what it means to be a growing Christian is that uh, you are a, a minister or you are a servant. You're an instrument of God. And so uh, how you, um, the choices you make, kind of the things that excite you or the things that you stay away from, those are selected, uh, those are discerned through the lens of a minister, an instrument, a servant. So this kind of hit home uh, in a new way, uh, I, I felt for me this past few months, right? That the values of a true servant of God are really tough can be tough 
right? It's glorious too. It's special. It's uplifting. It's you know, transformative. But there are the hard stuff too. That a servant, right? There's wonderful things like he he only cares. Ultimately, cares what the master thinks, right? A servant doesn't you know attract glory to himself. He he points it to. He gives honor and credit uh, to the master. But sometimes a servant has to do yeah lowly things. Sometimes the servant has to do um, unpopular things, yeah, things that people won't appreciate or dislike. You have to say certain things, you have to behave a, a certain way. Right? But if you're focused on that, if that's your core value system, if that's what's important to you, um, As you live it out, yeah, there's reward, but don't forget, I'm realizing that, don't forget that there's a cost. And, and that's what I think um, is really evident here for the, um, for the servant, right? the servant of the Lord uh, in Isaiah. Yeah, he's counted the cost. He knows that uh, to be a servant of the sovereign Lord uh, means you can't serve yourself. Means you can't serve um, the powers that be. You can't even serve like you know good things or people that you love per se. It it involves that it entails some uh, yeah, abuse and suffering at times. Um, the audience of the serpent um, they would lash out at him and with anger and retribution his words were like a sharpened sword they would pierce the consciences of the people and so they would pierce in turn pierce his body with their fists and pummel his ego with threats and invective um, so he knew that to be faithful to the to be determined uh, would result in this kind of uh, hardship. Um, so, okay, uh, I want to move to the third contour, the servant's determination to obey. Right. And we're good with maybe getting out there and uh, applying, but it's hard to keep up, hard to maintain hard to persevere. Um, what uh, kept the servant uh, going? What was forged through discipleship? What manifested in the face of suffering? How did he make it through the pressure uh, to give up? And I think uh, the answer is provided starting from verse 7. Um, in verses 7 to 11, we see what sustains the servant. And it's the Lord, right? It makes sense. The, the Lord who called him, the Lord who prepared him, the Lord who was there for him. Right? Even when things go south, the Lord, he knows that the Lord is aside. He personally knows what it's like to be helped by the sovereign Lord. There's a personal confidence that the Lord will not allow him to be ultimately disgraced. So he moves from humiliation. He doesn't get stuck there. He moves to renewal, to confidence. He's able to keep going again and again, because 
what he did, this, this suffering was not a result of disobedience, but was a consequence of obedience, right? So he's confident in God's help. He, his trust in the sovereign Lord is unwavering. Uh, this vindication is certain. And so he's able to kind of set his face like flint. Yeah, you know, flint is uh, a very hard rock, a mineral, actually. Um, it's great for tools or setting sparks. Right? If you have a flint, you can always start a, a fire, get a, get a flame. Um, I guess uh, in, in uh, Luke chapter 9, we're told that Jesus um, is kind of a turning point in the Gospel of Luke, the narrative, that he set his face resolutely uh, towards uh, Jerusalem. That's the same idea. He set his face like flint. It's kind of a, a, an allusion back to Isaiah 50. He was super seriously determined, anticipating toe-to-toe conflict uh, with the opposition. Yeah, so here we have um, the, the servant able to keep going, able to maintain his determination because it's, again, grounded in the hope he has um, in the Lord, uh, even um, like there's this, you know, there's a depiction, right, of a court scene in which the servant says, okay, anybody who has uh, any sort of accusation or anybody, any detractors come forward and, 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 and challenge, uh, state what your issue is with me, because the ultimate defender, the advocate, the one who would prove that the servant is faithful is God himself, right? So he knows that none of these charges or accusations will stand. They'll be dismissed out of hand, right? He knows that um, God is the one who can prove him to be innocent, to justify him. And he compares all the other kind of people to like garments that are like fraying and getting thinner and they're eaten by moths. It's just going to fall apart compared to the confidence in God. Like, you know, there's, again, maybe many other examples that can be given, but I was thinking about like if you were a defendant accused of a, a terrible crime um, and you knew somehow that uh, your, the, 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 the witness or the person who could prove that you're absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely innocent is going to come and defend you, like if there's that certainty, you would have hope, right? You, that you would be able to kind of endure the injustice or the suffering of being let's say on trial or in prison, right? So the example I came up with was from Les Mis, right? The book, it comes out in the, in the musical as well, but you know, Valjean, um, he kind of sheds his old identity as a thief and as a prisoner and becomes a mayor and really starts to kind of revive economically this town and stuff. And Javert is always on his heels. They're trying to find Valjean, but Valjean's kind of disguised uh, and then um, they kind of interact, right, in this one town. And Javert says, we have found Valjean. He's saying it to the disguised Valjean. We, we arrested him. There's this guy pretending to be somebody else, but that's Valjean, and he's going to be, you know, imprisoned or executed or whatever. Right? And so Valjean realizes, or he starts to kind of wrestle, because if he doesn't say anything, if he lets that guy uh, get um, uh, caught, then Javier is no longer going to chase him. But he could not, and, and he could continue his good work as a mayor, but he realizes that he can't let this innocent guy suffer for his, you know, the raw, the false identity. And so he goes there, and the book apparently has a lot more detail about how 
you know, the, the witnesses like uh, Javier has testified, and then a few fell, uh, like a few fellow prisoners uh, when Valjean was back in prison testified that that guy, his name is, I uh, can't pronounce his name, uh, Champ Mathieu is actually Valjean. That is, they look, they resemble each other so much. So, you know, Valjean could have, when he, when he gets there, he could have just said, okay, we'll just let this go. But he, he doesn't. He has to say something. He reveals his own true identity, and then that, that guy goes free. So, to, to fit <laughs> what the servant says here, I'd have to say that Champ Mathieu knows that Valjean's going to come and, you know, show up and, and prove to the court that, uh, that he's not, you know, guilty. Right? But if he did, right, that hope of release, the hope of the truth, being um, manifested, right? That could sustain him. I think that's what the servant has. That's what we need to have, I think, if we're going to persevere in our own uh, determination, right? In other words, we got to keep relying on God. And that's what verses 10 to 11 uh, say, right? Um, the servant calls others to heed his voice and follow his example. If the hearers won't, they will end up in the same predicament as the opponents of the servant. So uh, verse 10 through 11, it talks about um, this um, walking in darkness um, with no light. And that's kind of where the, uh, in darkness because uh, of the suffering that he is going through. The servant chooses to rely on the Lord. And he challenges others to do so. But sometimes we can't wait for God. And so we, what we do is we um, try to make our own lights. We uh, try to um, create our own illumination, try to find our own way, make our own solution. But the servant warns, if you do that, you are going to end up in torment. You're going to burn up. You're going to be consumed. Right? Even when it's dark, wait for the light that um, God can give up. God's holy light will cause other lights to burn up. So, but his light uh, can uh, deliver us. It can uh, give us uh, the light that we need. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we try to cover the servant in his this development, uh, the formation of this determination, and then the test, would he actually do it? He does, but he's not destroyed by it. He stays steady, he keeps at it, and the result is that you know, he accomplishes the most arduous of tasks. Right? Um, this is, of course, leading us to Good Friday. Right? This Friday, we'll look at the fourth servant song. Uh, it'll delve more deeply uh, into the servant's uh, profound suffering uh, in obedience uh, to the sovereign Lord. The darkness is going to get darker. Okay. Let's pray. Maybe uh, some time uh, reflecting on you know, the servant's determination. Uh, compare our own. How um, readily we give up how the values of a servant are not that important to us, maybe these days or maybe ever. 
if we try to light our own way, however misguided that may be. Let's pray. <laughs>